I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Ruler podcast, supported by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Ruler issue 19.5 is in the shops or coming through your letterbox about now, with covers for both editions featuring the iconic Mappe jersey. Inside is a detailed history of one of cycling's most successful teams, who in the late 90s and early 2000s dominated the one-day classics and took stage victories and podium places on the Grand Tours. But why were they so special? And why, 17 years after the team folded, are they so fondly remembered by so many fans? Ruler editor Andy McGrath wrote the article. Andy, what, what, what do you think? Why uh, are Mappe still so iconic as a team? I think, firstly, it's the level of success they had. They defined a generation. Certainly in the classics, they were the dominators. But they were winning across the board, pretty much, like the bunch sprints too. And... A few grand tours, uh, uh, certainly um, in the mid '90s. Anyway, I think people are, are drawn to winners most of the time. Like you see with Ineos and maybe Maltini, Claire, Renault, all these teams with champions through the years. This was a team with several champions all the time, which made it even more special. Then you've got the jersey. The jersey really does stand out, kind of even more than those teams I've just mentioned kind of giving it a very colourful, exotic air, much more exotic than what Mappe actually do, uh, which is kind of selling adhesives and sealant and one of the top uh, building product sellers in the world. Well, I think the marketing works because a few years ago I needed some grout or something, went into B&Q and saw that, you know, that colour scheme, <laughs> the Mappe colour scheme on the shelves and thought, oh, well, I know which grout I'm buying. And that was you know, many years after the team folded. But I hadn't realised till I read the article that actually the, the jersey was effectively designed by the company, wasn't it? It was, it was effectively designed by the, sort of the head of Mappe. The head of Mappe is Giorgio Squinzi, Dottore Giorgio Squinzi, as everyone calls him, Dottore, like a term of respect. And his wife, Dottoressa Spazzoli, she was the one as the head of marketing who actually designed that colourful jersey. Uh, this feature was a mission. It really was a mission. It started in October 2017 during the Rulo Classic. I went for a beer with Paolo Bettini. He was the first interviewee. And we talked about the uh, kind of Mappe years. Also, it took me about 18 months to call it Mappe. I kept saying Mappai. Like, there's a subtle difference there, but anyway. And then it was just ticking off people because it was important to me to do most of the um, interviews with the protagonists face-to-face which took a while. So there was a trip to Tuscany. We met uh, Michele Bartoli, 
Paolo Fornaciari, who was mid-shift at his ice cream parlour. And in general, do all these people look back on their time with Mappe, um, you know, favourably? Do they have fond memories of it? Essentially, yes. They knew they were part of something special. Bartoli, not so much, because he had an unhappy time there. He had a nearly career-ending crash, and I think problems internally with the team. They wanted him to work with the training centre they had, and he wanted to stay with Luigi Cecchini. But that's... That's fine. Like I, I, I didn't want to do just a aren't, aren't Mappe so great? Here's all the reasons why. I, I kind of wanted to explore the dynamics because a lot of them were saying, oh, they've never any problems with ego or ambition. Well, that's just that's just not true. Like, so I found it quite funny. For example, when Taffy Andrea Taffy says in the article that there were never any problems. Zero was the word that he used. And then speaking independently, Wilfred Peters explained how Taffy flicked him, basically, for victory in in two consecutive Roubaix. Um, so it still underlines how crafty uh, you have to be to win. Uh, and sometimes it was being the craftiest guy in Mappe would then win the kind of monument, like let alone beating the rivals. Because there's still some sort of controversy, isn't there, and disagreement about their most famous win, the yeah, the one, two, three at uh, at Roubaix. It still rolls on, yeah. Because um, I went back to old, old cycling weeklies and old web reports from '96. Uh, it was, I think, and some people still say different things. Kind of Squinzy says it was Lefevre's like decision. Some people say that he made a phone call to Lefevre to decide the order, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And it has gone down as one of the most famous one-day race wins in, in the last 30, 40 years, and we'll probably never see that um, again. Three riders from the same team entering Rubé Velodrome. And then, but then they said to me that a kind of squashing everything else that has been said, said quite bolshely that he was the strongest that day and he could have dropped them on any sector if he wanted to, which is an incredible thing to say over 20 years later. I, I guess the uh, closest recent or modern equivalent of the various sort of incarnations of Quick Step, and again, there's that. Patrick Lefebvre connection there isn't there and he was clearly key to Mappe's success that's right I mean what's quite interesting though is also the story of how it became this super team because it started out as this very middle of the road even small failing Italian team I didn't quite realize how that had evolved before Lefebvre got there and it really sped up so I, I just wanted it, it to be the whole picture and to surprise a few people rather than just talking about victories, victories, victories. But yeah, I mean, Lefebvre takes a lot of, of credit. Uh, even now, Museo and other riders talk of this sixth sense he has for, or this just ability to gel teams and get them to ride for United goal. Uh, sometimes that uh, the truth may be slightly different, but as long as they win, I think it's okay. But I think guys like... Uh, Fabri, uh, Fabrizio Fabri, the DS, and Bartolozzi, and, uh, and Alvaro Crespi. A lot of the guys behind the scenes um, also deserve credit for what they did with Mappe because they were winning, on average, 60, 70 races a season every year for 10 years, which is just, it's mind-boggling now. And only, in fact, only, as you say, de Koenig, under Lefebvre, get near that uh, annually now. I guess the elephant in the room 
as always, um, is the era in which they were racing and the sort of mid-90s to the early 2000s. Our next guest, Jonathan Vorters, will say that, you know, that was absolutely peak time for EPO. It's quite hard to get to the bottom of anything uh, like that with regard to MAPE, isn't it? It's very difficult. And frankly, like, I had to cut so much out of the article from 15, 20-odd interviews anyway. That was one box out that didn't make it, kind of. Because Squinzy, the big boss of MAPE, held them up as a paragon of anti-doping, and still does today. And I think he was disappointed. Certainly the uh, positive test of Garzelli at the 2002 Giro was the straw that broke the camel's back, that caused him to close MAPE. So I suppose the question really is, was there systemic doping in MAPE? And having written the article and talked to people, I have no smoking gun, I have no evidence, but we know what was going on. And I think during the research process, I totted up, I just showed you earlier, that I think at least 13 riders who rode for MAPE were either before riding there or after riding there involved uh, in doping positives or, or attached to doping cases. So circumstantially, you know, it would be insane uh, if riders on MAPE were not doping individually. I also wonder what it means to fans, like what would that change now, how they think about MAPE, which many people listening will have beautiful memories and will feel very strongly to this kind of adhesive and grout sealant selling firm. But for example, when it came out a few summers ago that Andrea Taffy, this monument winning champion, had a retroactive positive for EPO at the 1998 tour, among 25 odd other riders, I might add. What does that change? I mean, I think the memories in the 90s, when you have them, when you see these things, whether you're a teenager or you're younger, I, I think it's very difficult to amend your feelings retroactively, even if that's come out scientifically 20 years later. Yeah, it's part of that strange relationship, isn't it, that cycling fans have with the very murky history of the sport. Well, thanks for that, Andy. And we'll be hearing from Jonathan Vorters of EF Education First right after this. My name is Rupert Englander. Um, I'm a self-confessed mammal, and uh, I've been a member of LACA since probably about January last year. Funny enough, I literally had to make my first claim last week. I had an off on the way back from work. Nothing serious, thankfully. But I managed to sort of break the hub in my rear wheel and derailleur got bent and so on. I tore the saddle. And the guys at LACA have been astonishing. I mean, I literally, I submitted a claim, which is just you, you take a photo, a couple of photos and a, a video of what's happened. So this was after hours, obviously. I was commuting home. So I didn't expect to hear anything until at least the next day. I think it was about 20 minutes, actually, of the actual claim going in. Ordered a saddle that night. He's been working with a Somebody called Von Crank, who have actually got my bike now and are, uh, are actually fixing it up and will deliver it back to me in full working mode uh, tomorrow. It's a bit like having a mate. When you say, look, oh, something's happened and, uh, you know, I've broken the bike or whatever, and they go, right, do nothing, don't worry about it, I'll sort it for you. So um, I've been really impressed with the, um, the service I've received as a result of it. And you can find out more about LACA's unique approach to insurance on their website, laka.co.uk. Jonathan Vorters has always been one of the most individual voices in pro cycling as a rider and a team manager. He long ago admitted his history of doping, encouraged riders on his team to be open about theirs and was one of the key witnesses in the downfall of his former teammate Lance Armstrong. 
His new book, One Way Ticket, tells his story, from a scrawny, solitary kid riding his bike in the Colorado mountains to the high-stakes world of team management. He's outspoken, open and opinionated. But why did he write the book, and why now? I think there were a lot of factors that went into uh, the book. You know, uh, various publishers have been sort of bugging me about writing a book since basically 2011, 2012, when, you know, the the Lance scandal was erupting. Um, I purposefully didn't write a book back then and didn't agree to write a book back then um, because I never wanted to, you know, make money off the back of his collapse. That's not that's not the point of, of any of this. So I basically turned those offers down. Um, and I said, if, if you're still interested in another six or seven years, come back to me and then I'll I'll write a book about, you know, what what happened, like what really happened and, and what the sport really is and where it is and where it was. And, you know, and, and put, I think, put a lot of things into context, which is which was the purpose of the book. And uh, of course, there weren't quite as many offers on the table as there were back in 2012, but uh, there were some publishers that were still very much interested um, when we came back around. So uh, Jeremy Whittle was the one who convinced me, you should, you should really do this. You know, I, I think you've got a unique perspective on this. You should do it. The other factors involved were the team was finally in a financial position and myself in a managerial position that I wasn't working, you know, 23 and a half hours a day. Uh, and I wasn't in the, you know, sort of a desperate search for money every year that, uh, we have, you know, very solid financial backer and I have a much larger group of people, you know, supporting the team and supporting myself than I used to. So I actually had the time to be able to, you know, to be contemplative and to be philosophical and to actually sit down and write these words. <laughs> and then the third factor, and I, and I hate to admit this one, but it was a little bit, um, you know, driven by, you know, my recent divorce. And um, when that was happening, yeah, I, I guess the best way I could say it is that it, it wasn't, it wasn't quite finalized yet. And, and, you know, and, and um, my ex-wife is a, is, you know, she, she was a literary student uh, in college. She graduated with a degree in, in, in American literature. I think it, you know, it was English, English literature. It's like, I wanted to impress her, you know, to like win her back. I'm going to write a book that, that she'll be so impressed with it that it'll win her back, you know, and that was a little bit stupid. But to be fair, very good motivation, you know, when you're trying to sit down and write a couple thousand words each and every single day, woof, like you need something to be kicking you in the butt. And, and that was that that was a driving force. Did you find it a cathartic process writing the book? Yeah. I mean, <sighs> cathartic. Yeah. But then also, you know, there are just a lot of moments that I said, OK, I, I need to write this as it was. I, I got that advice very early on. Uh, I sent one of the early sample chapters to Paul Kimmage and, and Paul Kimmage said to me, you're polishing it too much. Stop, you know, j just write it as it was. And I took that advice from Paul very seriously. Um, because to me, you know, a rough ride is, is sort of a, a point in the world of cycling. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's a book that, that will never be written again. And, and, you know, I could only like hope that, that my book comes, you know, somewhere close to the, there. Um, so when he said that I started writing as it was and while cathartic, it also made me realize that there are a lot of points, you know, in my life and in my cycling career that, that 
while I might have felt at the time whatever I was doing was okay and I might have felt that it was right or might have felt that I was being a good person, the reality was is I was not being a good person and what I was doing was not right and I wasn't really thinking about anything else other than myself. And so as you're writing that down, you realize like, you know, for lack of better words, that I, there were quite a few moments that I was being a really selfish prick. And so I, you know, when you, when you put that on paper, you just think to yourself, oh, okay, I, I, need to, I, need to, I need to be better about the rest of my life. One of the things that strikes you really early on in the book is quite how different um, American cycling and cycling generally was when you started. It, it seems like ancient history, and it's not that long ago. But it was completely different in terms, you know, pre-Armstrong, pre-2012 for the UK. Cycling was a totally different sport, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we were, we were just kind of doing it ourselves. You know, there weren't there weren't power meters and there weren't high priced coaches and the, there weren't, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, one of my favorite chapters in the book, uh, chapter three, the, the orange Volvo chapter. And it's, you know, about how I read somewhere that motor pacing was a good idea. So I convinced my dad, you know, to go out in a station wagon and motor pace. I mean, and there was, there was nothing scientific about it. There were no heart rate monitors involved. There, was, It was just, you know, me behind a really old smelly Volvo station wagon, you know, ripping down a road at 35 miles an hour and somehow thinking that that was good training. I don't know. It probably was, but, um, but yeah, it was it was a, a very very different. Uh, it required a lot of self starting. You know, it wasn't there wasn't anyone behind you pushing you. It was either you wanted to do it and you and you wanted to figure it out, or you know, or it wasn't going to happen. So you make your dream of getting to Europe, riding in Europe. Um, you end up on a Spanish team, a now sadly forgotten Spanish team yeah. largely. <laughs> Um, yeah, but very much so forgotten. Sponsored or, or funded by the Catholic Church, so it has a very, uh, very, very sort of strict view to yeah. certainly start with towards doping. Yeah, and um, and you find yourself just being kicked at every opportunity, basically, because yeah. pretty much everyone else at that time is doping. Yeah, yeah, it was a hard start. I mean, those early years were they were tough. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't ready for the racing, doping or not. And then the fact that that was right at the inflection point, you know, sort of the 94, 95 season is right when EPO went from a few guys using it to everyone using it. You know, it just it just hit this sort of and once you sort of had the majority of people using it, it wasn't like the whole dynamic of how everything was raced was so much different. And the speeds on the climbs were just unbelievable back then. The fact that I really wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd never raced an amateur race in Europe. I'd, I'd raced junior races, but I went, I was supposed to do all these amateur races. And then because of, you know, the physiological testing or whatever, they decided to put me on the pro team as opposed to the amateur team. So I went from based from never having raced in a U23 or an amateur race in Europe to boom, you know, you're a full-fledged pro on a team that's going to go to the Vuelta. And the step was just staggering. Um, and then, sure, you throw doping in on top of that. And, you know, I was, for a good many months, I would say I was the worst rider in the professional peloton. <laughs> and at one point you say, if you were racing a Grand Tour in 96, you were taking EPO. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was the reality in 96. I don't think there, that may be the only year that that's the case. That was sort of like the peak, you know, in a way, because there was no test at all for it. 
and it was just rampant. You know, once, you know, then there's a hematocrit test comes in in 97 and then you have the Festina scandal in 98. And, and those things little by little slowed down, slowed down the use. Right. But yeah, 96. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's just the way it was. It was people say, well, so then every race, everyone was doping. And it's like, no, because there were certain races that some guys were, you know, you can't just take EPO all year long or you're really going to hurt your body. So, you know, they're cycling it on and off and on and off. And so there were certain races, of course, that, you know, that maybe there were people that weren't taking EPO, but that was only because they were, they'd taken it the month before or whatever, <laughs> you know? So it was, well, I mean, 96 was, uh, was a special year. That's for sure. You know, in a, in a bad, bad way. And the other thing that comes across really strongly in the book is quite how actually effective a drug mm. it was. Yeah. I mean, it really yeah. made a difference in a way that yeah. some other doping just didn't. Yeah, I, a, lot of, a lot of doping I see is not nearly as effective as it is scandalous. That is not the case with EPO. Um, you know, a lot of these things, you know, cortisone, testosterone, growth hormone, blah, 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 like might help, might not. If it does help, it, I don't feel like the difference is that much. But EPO is, is or, or anything involving increasing blood volume, really is noticeable. And, and you can feel it as a rider. It's a funny way you feel it, too, because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't set suddenly, you know, it's you take your first injection, or whatever, it's, you know, it's two or three weeks before you feel anything, a month before you really feel it. But then when you do, it's not that you feel any different. It's just that everything is, you know, 10% faster than it used to be, you know, you and, and, and you're, you know, you don't fatigue as much and you, you're more resistant to heat and you're, it's, you're more resistant to heat and you're more resistant to cold at the same time. You know, you, you just, it's all of a sudden you're just very robust, you know, and, and, and faster. And I don't know, it, it, it's just, it totally changes the way you race. You describe yourself a few times in the book at, at, at that time as, as an addict, Maybe yeah. not necessarily in the sense that we yeah. would understand an addict, right. but yeah, but someone who was addicted to the effects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not addiction in, in classic like alcoholism or you know addicted to cocaine or whatever. Your body's looking for some sort of like dopamine fix, um, but it is addicted in that. You know, I realized w what my performance could be with with EPO, and I realized what it could be without it. And the unfortunate part of once you realize that is that once you realize that any time you're racing without it, you kind of give up because you're just like, ah, I'm not going to win. What do I care? And so then your training starts to go down and everything kind of spirals down because you're, you're just you're like, what's the point? You know, I'm, I, even if I totally maximize everything, I'm still going to be, you know, 10% away from the guy who's taking EPO and he's also maximized everything. So what's the point? What do I care? And so that leads, you know, for an athlete, that leads to depression, basically. And there were a lot of times where I was really pretty depressed. So then you start taking the EPO again, and all of a sudden, your outlook changes. You start training better because you think, now I have a chance. Like, now I, I could win the race. I can because I'm on an equal playing field with these guys. And all of a sudden, you're training better, you're eating better, you're more focused, you're you know, you're not depressed, you're happy, you go into the races looking forward to racing as opposed to just sort of saying, well, I'll just limp my way through this one and see how the next one goes. And so I think, you know, maybe it's not the classical sense, but in a way, that is the definition of an addict. You touched on it there and you talk, quite frankly, throughout the book about uh, mental health and mm. the uh, occasions on which you were 
uh, very depressed. And also the fact that uh, mental health does seem to be an issue amongst the peloton, doesn't it? That mm. There are a number of cases of, of people uh, becoming depressed at different stages in their career. Do you think mm. enough is being done to help with that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult problem to conquer because fundamentally uh, high-level professional writers, these, these are not people that are risk-averse. These are, they are adrenaline addicts. Um, they are people that are, you know, addicted to hard work. They're addicted to success. They're addicted to, to, you know, the thrill of racing. They're addicted to winning. They're addicted to, you know, and so when there are moments where that is taken away, for instance, an injury, a poor season, uh, a sickness, whatever, you know, that for a while there's not the success and there's not the ability to work so hard and there's not the ability to risk take around the corner or whatever it is, right? And I think that taking that away has very much the same effect as if you, you know, a cocaine addict or a heroin addict, you take away the drug. Is that there? There's a, a period of, you know, I don't know what the word is, remission, or that essentially they're they're just shocked by the fact that that's no longer part of their life. And I think that happens a lot, and especially when guys retire. I mean, that's the biggest. When you retire, now it's really taken away from you. So this drug, as it were, that you're addicted to for many, many, many years is all of a sudden no longer a part of your life. And, you know, adapting to that reality for, you know, people who are used to fans adoring them and are used to, you know, a lot of big things and all of a sudden they're just sort of, they're just living life like anyone else. It's hard. And I think it needs, to, it, it, you know, it, it should be dealt with as like, a, you know, a real you know, a real mental health problem, like, uh, you know, that, that probably has some chemical, you know, reasoning behind it and so on and so forth. And I mean, how we deal with that, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I don't have the perfect answer, but, uh, but it's, it's certainly, I mean, when I look at the number of writers of my generation and, and the traps they've fallen into after they've retired, it's, it's a, uh, you know, there's a lot of tears. What was it? What was the point at which you thought, no, this has got to stop. I can't be part of this any longer. Well, I think it, it, it really goes to the bee sting incident in, in 2001, um, the sort of the hypocrisy of that situation and, you know, myself getting pulled in different directions. And um, this was Roger Leger yeah. refusing to allow you to have right. a, a, a medicine which would have helped right. with the bee sting. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's funny because I think that story has been told so many different ways, but and it usually people don't get it right. The, what happened there is I get stung by a bee, had a massive allergic reaction to it. Um, the solution was cortisone. Um, and the people in the emergency room in the hospital in France were like, well, let's just give them a shot of cortisone and it'll be fine. Roger Leger said, well, no, stop. We can't do that. It's not permitted. at that. Now, now, now it is permitted for allergic reactions. Back then, that rule wasn't in place. He just said, no, we're not going to do that. And I was furious with him because, of course, like, you know, I knew from my days at Postal Service and I knew from other riders in the Peloton that cortisone was being blatantly abused all over the place. And people were saying, well, I have a knee injury, so I'm taking cortisone, even if they didn't have a knee injury or this, that and the other thing that TUEs were just being written up, you know, for no good reason whatsoever. Uh, and here was Roger Leger saying, I had a very legitimate reason. It wasn't in the rule book. All we needed to do is say, you know, this is, this is easy. Like just right in the, he had a knee injury and weirdly enough, this knee injury caused his face to swell up, but, but it was a knee injury. Just trust us. And it would have been fine and it would have gone away and I would have been in a real race the next day and, you know, and, and on and on we go. But he 
refuse to lie, essentially. And that isn't to say that there weren't points in Roger's career, you know, as a writer and as a director, that that, that was always the case. But he had drawn a firm line after the, the 98 uh, Festina scandal. And he just said, no, we're, we're not going to lie. That That's going to perpetuate the problems in cycling, and we're not going to be part of it. We're not going to lie. You're not going to take it. And I was so furious about that. I hated him because it, you know, I couldn't finish the Tour de France, and we were th- like three days from the end. And there were other riders when I tried to start that day, you know, and I wasn't going to be able to finish because I couldn't see. But I, when I tried to start that day, there were, there were riders laughing at me saying, well, why don't you just take cortisone? I said, well, it's not permitted. Well, just say it's a knee injury. And the hypocrisy of that situation where I had this team manager that's trying to take a stand and that basically no one is supporting him in that, including myself, it just, it just twisted my mind around. And from that point... I just, I never was, I just wasn't interested in racing my bike anymore, if, if that makes sense. I just, I, I needed to step away. And, you know, it was just the, the, the continuous unanswered question of, you know, on one hand, you know, everyone wants you to perform at this high level and your fans and your family and all the people who helped you get there, they're, they're cheering for you and you feel it. And then on the other hand, you know, they they don't know that you're having to lie to them in order to do that performance. And that hypocrisy also like just slowly kind of ate away. So what I knew is there wasn't an option for me to just be a mediocre rider. Like, okay, I'll just train really hard, race clean and kind of finish, you know, 89th place. My brain just wouldn't handle that. So it was either start doping start doping full bore again in order to, to, you know, get to the highest level or stop racing. And th- there was really no in between. And after the beasting incident, I just, I basically chose that, that stopping racing was the best choice for me. And have since, you know, run teams which have a stated policy of riding clean. Um, and you, I mean, you do say that uh, it is now easy to spot, if you like, when, if, if, if people are still cheating and presumably some of it still goes on Mm. but it's more easy to spot in some ways now well i think yeah i mean it's easier it sticks out more than it used to be um but it's listen i mean the doping issue is never gonna completely go away in any sport um unfortunately it's just you know it's just human nature but I don't know. I mean, a lot of a lot of what I read on social media and whatnot is is very much people who want to see certain people get caught, or they want to see blood, or they want to see someone get taken down, or whatever. But I think that that misses the fundamental point of anti-doping. The fundamental point of anti-doping is one to protect the rights of clean athletes, and two to protect the health of all athletes. And so if you take those two things, that doesn't necessarily require people getting taken down all the time. And of course, if something gets caught, they get caught. And that's part of enforcement. But I've I've read a lot of criticism about the biological passport in that it hasn't caught enough people, right? Well, the biological passport was maybe never intended to catch a lot of people. The intention was to dissuade. In that way, well, dissuade and to minimize. And in that way, I think it's been very effective because the, the basics of the biological passport is, you know, can you get away with a very small amount of doping and get it under the, the radar of the biological passport? The answer to that is yes, unfortunately. But is that tiny amount of doping 
really going to change the result of the race? And that's more questionable. There's a passage in the book in 2001 Dauphiné where I win the time trial in the Dauphiné and then completely melt down because I think I'm going to test positive because I'm not sure I've gotten the dosages exactly right and so on and so forth. And so then, you know, two days later, I'm dropping out of the race after, after winning the time trial because I just, I couldn't sleep at night for two nights in a row. I had zero sleep. And, you know, so that's an example of how better testing works in that essentially I was, you know, I was so freaked out that these new testing techniques were going to catch me that even though I was doping, it, it kind of pulled the result away from me. And so that was an example of, you know, the rights of a clean athlete being upheld in a way. I wasn't the clean athlete, but maybe some guy who I would have beaten that the rights of that person were being upheld. Um, and I think that that's the, you know, that's the important part. It's, I would say the biggest thing that I could say now is that in 1996, the question, can a clean rider win one of the biggest races in the world? Is that possible? And the answer is no. And in, you know, 2019, if you say, can a clean rider win one of the biggest races in the world? And the answer is yes. And to me, that 30,000 foot perspective is why I am, you know, very confident and very positive and very optimistic about about anti-doping. And the other reason is, is listen, I have to be because when I, earlier, when I said, you know, when, when you stop doping and you realize everyone else is, and that it spirals your mind down and you just, you lose motivation. If my riders and my team think other guys are doping, they will give up before they even start the race. Clean riders, clean teams, whatever, you have to really believe, whether it's true or not, you have to believe that the Peloton is clean, that anti-doping is improving, that things are getting better. You have to believe that or else you've lost before the race has even started. You say in the book a couple of times, so similar things. One that really stood out to me was you know, cycling is always heartache. Mm. If that's true, why, why are you still in it? Well, I think maybe I overstated it. Cycling is 95% heartache, maybe not always heartache. Um, it's, you know, the valleys are very long and low. Um, in management or in racing, if you think, I mean, when a rider wins five races a year, that's considered an incredibly successful season for that rider, right? Well, you know, if he raced a hundred days, that means he's only winning 5% of the time. The rest of the time he's losing, you know, management, it's the same thing. Management, you, you lose sponsors constantly. You're fighting for, you know, for money, you're fighting for solvency, you're fighting for other teams, for the best riders. You're, you're, you're losing a lot, even the best teams, you know, are, are losing a lot of battles and going through some really tough times. And so, you know, why, why, why put yourself through that? And I think I, I probably first realized this um, when I was, I was getting my MBA at the University of Denver and, and my classmates, I, you know, they had jobs that kind of gave them a certain amount of satisfaction each and every day. And usually, you know, there were, they had some hard moments, but it was much more stable than I was. You know, I was either on the floor or through the ceiling. But what I realized is that those five, 10 moments, well, 10 would be a lot, but five moments per year that you're absolutely through the ceiling, ecstatic, happy. Yesterday was one of them for us. Our rider who's raced for us since 2004, Alex Howes, won the US National Championship that he's been chasing since he was like 12. At that moment, you can't replicate the joy you feel out of that in any other profession, or at least for me. And so that moment sort of carries me through months or even years of dealing with some really tough stuff. So 
the, the answer to your question is, you know, why do you do it? It's for those moments. It's, the, I mean, they're brief and they're fleeting and you're, you're kind of only on the high for maybe, you know, a couple hours, but it doesn't matter. Like that you, I, I can't find that feeling anywhere else in this world. And so I'm willing to basically deal with the hardship in order to just taste those little moments every once in a while. If you had one piece of advice for that skinny kid in Colorado riding his bike on his own, you know, behind the Volvo or not behind the Volvo, um, in retrospect, what would it be? Oh, boy, wow. Um, gosh, that's, I, you know, I, I, I mean... I I don't know I don't I don't know what I would tell I mean that the the problem is is it's like all those mistakes that I made were so fundamental to who I've become now that I I almost don't want to redirect that guy you know I I want to kind of let him fall into the ditch and I kind of want to let him screw up and I kind of want to because if I if I give him some really good advice you know then he's not going to make those mistakes and 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 fundamentally well he won't be able to write this book. <laughs> John Vorters. And that's it from this podcast. No Stuart Clapp on this edition, but don't worry, he's back in full effect on the next. On site at his latest eccentric photo shoot location, the Battle of Britain Airfield of Biggin Hill. Fasten your seatbelts. We'll see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.